Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Wednesday, September 27th, and we're talking about two stories, Axiom's massive Alzheimer's flop and the biologics controversy swirling around Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, filling in for Christine Harges this week, who's about halfway through her big Greek vacation. And I'm joined in the studio, as always, by Todd Campbell. Todd, great to be talking to you today. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Well, really, more it's me thanking you for having me, since you're on the show a lot more often than I am. But uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad we get to talk to through two really very interesting and very different stories. So so let's dive right in. Accident, you know... Let, let, yeah, well, well, and <laughs> let's not bury the lead. There was definitely a big flop. But let's start, actually, by talking about everything that seemed to be going right for them beforehand, because I think that's really the key part of this story, is that things, in a lot of ways, looked as much as they can be whenever someone's studying Alzheimer's, pretty good for accident. You know, Michael, as investors, I think you and I probably agree, we, you know, ideally, we'd love to catch stocks, pick winners early on, right? Right. And, and But in, in biotech, oftentimes, it seems like it's akin to buying a scratch-off ticket. Right. Well, and particularly you know, when, you, when you're looking at these... There's just so many things that are out of our control. Yeah. And, and whether or not we're going to win or we're going to lose. I mean, maybe we win a buck, or, or most of the time we're probably going to come up empty. And sure enough, in in the case of this uh, Alzheimer's disease drug for accident, um, we did come up dry or we did come up empty uh, with a losing ticket. And I think that it's it's going to... There's some good lessons here, though, listeners, we can take away from this. Sure. And, you know, I, I think that one of the, the things you're alluding to in saying, okay, well, let's talk about what was going right, right? Because I think that oftentimes it's very easy for us to look at all of the things that are lining up as evidence, you know, because obviously we, we don't have insight into what's going on in the clinical trial. Sure. Right? We don't... We don't know if this, the drug is being is is panning out or not while the study is going on. So we have to you know build up this body of evidence, then come to whatever you know guesswork we can at, uh, based on that evidence. And in the case of Axe, but there were a lot of signs uh, that may you know encourage you to sure. take a risk and take a gamble, even though we're talking about Alzheimer's disease, which is undeniably the most difficult. Um, disease to try and develop new drugs for. Right. And not least of those, I mean, frankly, when Axiom went public, it was a massive IPO, $360 million. That's unheard of in American biotech. Yeah, it was the, it was the biggest um, at the time in biotech. It may still be the biggest IPO. And I think that the reason for that, you know, enthusiasm or optimism was because, again, you're targeting this massive, large uh, population that's growing mm -hmm. and that currently has totally inadequate uh, treatment options associated with it. But it wasn't just the fact that they were targeting Alzheimer's disease that made this company intriguing to investors. You know, you got to go back and say, okay, well, what were they trying to do? You know, what what was the drug and 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 walk me through what what made this company interesting? Mm -hmm. And I think that you have to start with the founder, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Vivek is a former hedge fund manager he was a, you know he's, he's done a lot of things for and at the ripe age of 29 <laughs> he created a company called Royvent and Royvent had one mission to go and hunt through all of the drugs that have been discarded by big pharma uh, because for one reason or another big pharma didn't want to spend all of that money that's associated with late stage trials because they just have so many different drugs in development they've got to pick and choose sure find those gems that have been i guess accidentally discarded buy them for pennies on the dollar, 
and then using all of the intelligence tools available to you, design a study with the greatest likelihood of producing a positive result. And that's what Vivek's mission was at um, Axiom. It was to buy a drug on the cheap, in this case, Intepridine, which is a drug he picked up from GlaxoSmithKline for five million bucks, you know, which now looks like he overpaid, but at the right. time, you know, <laughs> bargain basement price, right? And then look at the phase two studies that were successful and design a phase three study that mimicked that phase two success as closely as possible to try and, I guess, uh, encourage the likelihood of a win. And I think this is one of the really important points to, to, to draw out here is that you're taking this sort of value investor mindset to what's really a growth industry. Right. So the idea of having, um, you know, a cigar butt that somebody else has discarded that's got a couple more puffs in it. Right. Is very uh, key to this idea of value investing and basically finding something that has more value than other people are willing to give it to you for is, is the essence of making money. And so I think that's very attractive. It's a very attractive story. And let's face it, healthcare because there so much depends on these clinical trials that you can't predict, right? And so much depends on whether management knows what they're doing. A lot of your small cap biotech stocks are story stocks. And so they have this story. And frankly, this was a pretty compelling story. Yeah. I mean, you know, Michael, he put together an all-star cast, an all-star team on the bench to try and navigate this drug to market. Yeah. You know, one of the people that he hired early on is Dr. Lawrence Friedhoff. And Dr. Lawrence Friedhoff is the person who was responsible for developing the top-selling Alzheimer's disease drug of all time, which is Aricept. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you had this great team in place that theoretically you had all of the things lined up that if you were going to be able to, to I guess, get a few extra puffs out of that cigarette butt that you picked up, uh, they were going to be able to, to be the ones who would allow you to do it. Um, unfortunately, you know, obviously, we now know this that 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 despite all of the king's horses and all the king's men, all the efforts that were put forth to try and get this drug across the finish line, it was a it was a failure. I mean, they 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 missed on the the primary two primary endpoints of the study, uh, same primary endpoints that that they had had in the successful phase two study. Um, you know, they used the best dose that gave them the best. Uh, likelihood of, of success based on that mid-stage study. They enrolled the same population of patients that, that had been successful uh, in that prior study. I mean, they, they basically did everything that they were supposed to do. Yeah. But when push comes to shove, you know, they basically bought a pretty looking car that doesn't have an engine. <laughs> right. And <clears throat> I think this really highlights the fact that Alzheimer's is an incredibly difficult disease to invest in. I mean, let's face it, you've got a 99 plus percent failure rate for drugs that go into the clinic. Almost all the big farmers at this point have taken a shot at Alzheimer's and failed. And it's very clear. I mean, listen, this is an enormous disease population with, with tremendous need for new development. 5.5 million Americans, Michael, yeah, with, I mean, uh, with Alzheimer's disease and more than expected to double over the course of the next few decades. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's enormous and, and frankly, it's a frightening diagnosis and there is a lot of, of clinical need here. On the and, flip side. And the, the current treatment options, Michael, I mean, like I said they're not previously, they're just, they don't work well. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and and unfortunately, though, on the flip side, you know, you've got all these people kind of going after this holy grail, and it's just not happening, at least thus far. And so, I'll say for me personally, I was invested in um, Biogen in part because of their um, Alzheimer's uh, treatment that they were putting uh, in the clinic, and which is still ongoing through uh, through clinical trials, and. That was actually one of the reasons I ended up selling my shares, is because I looked at Biogen and said, you know, the risk reward just isn't great across the board, and I'm pinning way too much of too many of my hopes for this company on an Alzheimer's drug, where frankly you've got a really very tiny uh, chance of success. Now I could end up regretting that, right? Because this could be the you know Biogen's could be the one that ends up working, but um, the I'm one just out of a hundred, Michael. Yeah, I'm just I'm just those are not good odds. No, they they're really not. Maybe it's not a scratch off ticket you're buying. It's it's actually the Mega Millions or something. I I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, you know, in in bio, in fairness to Biogen, they they're they're researching different targets. This was kind of a, you know, this was, Intepridine was targeting 5-HT6, and the idea was that if we can boost acetylcholine in the brain, um, then we might be able to improve cognition. Right. And there was some reason for thinking that could be true because if you look at Aricept, which is the drug that was studied alongside uh, of interpreting in this study, um, what it does is it prevents acetylcholine from being broken down. Right. So, you know, the idea was let's deliver a one-two punch where we boost it by using Tepardine and we prevent it from getting broken down by Aricept and maybe that gives us a better outcome. The problem is that we just don't fully understand these targets. Yeah, you know, it, it, we so so there's a lot of hypothesis that goes into this thinking. Well, if I do this, maybe this happens, but maybe not. We just fully we don't fully understand how the brain works and and how these synapses communicate. And that's why we've had problems with you know we look at plaque buildup, we look at you know uh, uh, tangles and how they're str- strangling off the nerve endings, all of these different things that we think may be the cause of Alzheimer's disease. But we really just don't know yet. Yeah, now and that's that's going to be a continuing problem for drug development in this area. As for Axivent, uh, they have about two hundred ninety-eight million in cash as of the end of June. But frankly, the pipeline outside of Intepridine is pretty early stage, and um, yeah. I think I think we will probably not be talking too much about Axivent in the near future. Well, it really depends. Okay, so. Let's let's if you if you happen to own it and hopefully you're diversified so you didn't you know I mean if you can suffer if you got five percent in it then you suffered a hit you yeah. know no question but it's not a deal breaker for you so now you look at it and you say well as an investor what's next for me they do have another study going on right now for intepardine that should read out before the end of the year and that's a phase two B study in dementia patients with Lewy bodies it's a, a million plus population. Uh, second most common form of dementia in the elderly. Um, Obviously, not a lot of confidence right now that that's going to pan out based on what we just saw. But it's possible. But the wild card is that there is a bigger uh, dose Mm -hmm. uh, of the drug being used in this trial. So who knows? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, here's hoping for, for good results because, frankly, again, you know, this is, these are a rough series of diagnoses and it would be very nice to have some, um, some positive outcomes, but I, I think neither of us is terribly confident. <clears throat> By the way, listeners, I, I should apologize. My voice is a little raspy because I am getting over a cold. Um, so when you hear that, know that it's it's not you. It's not your headphones. It's me. Um, let's go ahead and turn over to Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer. So basically, 
there's uh, there's there's a lot going on, a lot to unpack. Uh, let's let's start with some because there's a, there's a lawsuit and just a lot going on with biologics here. But let's start with some background. So Pfizer um, got into biologics, which are these complex medicines created in living organisms. Um, they got into uh, biosimilars specifically. So that's this idea of getting something that's similar to the original biologic, but not precisely the same because these are living organisms. They can't be precisely the same. Um, in a really big way with their purchase of Hospira in 2015. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that, yeah, we got some definitions that we'll, we'll try to make sure if you're a new listener that we, we try and keep you up to speed on it. You know, Michael already mentioned the fact that you've got biologics, they're complex medicines, they're created in living organisms, they're not easily copied, right? They're also some of the most expensive, uh, top-selling medicines in the world, on the planet. And, you know, biotech companies invest a lot of money in developing biologics. One of the reasons was that because of their complexity, they couldn't be easily replicated. So their thinking was, if they can't replicate it exactly, maybe I have more protection on my sales uh, that stretches beyond protection on my sales that stretches beyond the expiration of patents. Well, maybe not, right? Because once Obamacare passed, it included provisions that allowed for an FDA pathway to approval for biologics that were similar to, but not exact replicas of these reference drugs. So essentially creating a marketplace for biosimilars, drugs that can produce the same outcomes with the same safety, but you know, they're not exact replicas. And Pfizer uh, became one of the, I guess at the forefront of the research into biosimilars with its $17 billion acquisition of Hospira back in 2015, once it knew that it had that pathway available to it to be able to get biosimilars to the market to compete against these biologics for all of that money that was at stake. Right. And and a little bit more background on biologics and biosimilars. So, um, as Todd mentioned, you know, you can't, um, you know, there really hasn't been a regulatory pathway for biosimilars until very recently in the United States. However, there has been one in Europe for longer. And so, essentially, what happens is, when a normal, when a small molecule drug, so a non-biological drug goes generic, usually um, the generic drug companies will come in, they'll hack, you know, 80, 90 percent off the price, and they'll sell their generics, and then the um, main company will either have to figure out whether they're just going to exit the market, whether they're going to try to compete based on brand name, whether they're going to lower prices, kind of all of that. With biologics and biosimilars, because uh, it's so much more difficult to create a reference, dr- uh, or sorry, a, a biosimilar for that reference drug that is, you know, similar, it, although not precisely the same. Um, usually, the markdown is something more like ten to thirty percent is what we've seen in Europe, and so the expectation is that that kind of comes through in the United States. So now, yeah, let me fa- jump in for a second, Michael. Yeah, sure, just go provide ahead. listeners with two quick numbers. Um, read studies that say that to develop a typical traditional small molecule generic drug may cost someone 10 million bucks to do the research and get that to the market. On biosimilars, could be 100 to 200 million. Right, and so that's why that that markdown is a lot less. Although it's still a markdown, right? It's still a savings for the health system. Absolutely, and the idea was okay. Uh, just like with traditional generics, if we can undercut on pricing, once those patents expire on the brand name um, uh, biologic, then free market takes over, 
and demand will flow to the lowest the provider of this of the good with the lowest price. Right. Basically, however, economics. maybe that's not happening. Yeah, and and that's what's what's interesting, and that's what's at the core of Pfizer's lawsuit against Johnson Johnson, which they filed on September twentieth, so a week before we filmed today. And so essentially, um, the the there have been seven biosimilars approved in the United States. The second one approved was for Pfizer's Inflectra, which is a biosimilar to J&J's Remicade. Now, Remicade is a, an autoimmune disease drug. So, it's for rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, plaque psoriasis, you know, a lot of those um, autoimmune diseases. In 2016, it had $4.8 billion in U.S. sales. So, that's, you know, a lot. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and it's not just a lot in, in absolute terms. It's a lot in terms of Johnson Johnson's total sales. Sales too, right? Right, nineteen percent of farmer revenue, nine percent of revenue company wide. So it's it's a big drug for J, for J and J. Unquestionably, the stakes were high, right? Right, and so what's happened is you know Inflector launched last November after the patents expired and J and J's legal strategies to delay things kind of ran out of options, and yet even though it's it's priced about ten percent below Remicade, it hasn't made that much headway. It's only accounting for what four percent of Remicade scripts. Yeah, in sales last quarter, I think we're only about 23 million in the United States. And to put that in perspective, Remicade sales last quarter in the U.S. were over a billion. Right. So, is the free market at work? And if it isn't, why? Right. And and so the interesting thing is that Pfizer is going after J and J's sort of biosimilar readiness plan strategy, which in, involves basically cutting deals with insurers and Remicade prescribers to exclude Inflectra and other Remicade biosimilars from their formularies and from reimbursement. I tell you, Michael, last week's show, um, you know, we had talked, uh, Christine and I had talked about patents and the way that companies, drug makers are using patents to kind of, uh, uh, can use patents to, to kind of insulate themselves against the threat of generic upstarts. Right. And, I, you know, at the time it didn't even dawn on me. <laughs> you know, to think about the fact that, you know, these companies could do uh, something that I, I you know, nefarious, I don't know, um, as, as you know, redo their contracts in such a way that it would force insurers' hands to say, we're not going to even cover this drug because we don't want to jeopardize our relationship with J&J. Right. And so what's interesting about J&J's strategy is what they've basically said is, that um, J&J offers insurers rebates on Remicade, right? A lot of folks don't pay full um, retail price on drugs. And they've tied that to, well, but only if you exclude Inflectra. Now, with most patients, what, about 70% of Remicade users being satisfied with the drug? Doctors probably don't want to switch them off anyway unless the insurer forces them to. So, what they've, what they've essentially done is they've said, yeah, sure, you can have Inflectra on your formulary, but if you do, Remicade's going to cost you, insurer, a ton more money. It's going to more than balance off the cost savings of having Inflectra on your formulary, and doctors won't want to switch it anyway. So, you're just going to take everybody off and probably lose money in the process. And it's obviously been very successful. I mean, uh, over two thirds of the covered lives that are covered by insurance plans, uh, commercial insurance plans, so private citizens, right, have embraced these contracts with J and J. And it wasn't even Michael that they said we're going to tie the rebates only on Remicade right. to your excluding it. 
they tied it to other drugs in their pipeline too. And you know, J and J is a Goliath. Right. You know, like you're talking about tens of billions of dollars uh, in pharmaceutical sales over any any given six month period of time. And those rebates can total in the tens of millions of dollars to to some of these insurers. So you look at it and you say, well, yeah, Inflector is 10% cheaper, but how long would it take me to get to scale in the Inflector patient population to offset this lost revenue from the rebates? Right. Well, and, and it's interesting because you know, we're talking about the U.S. specifically. Now, when you go abroad, Merck sells Remicade uh, for J&J, for and Remicade sales are down 40% year over year because of the, um, the increase in all these biosimilars. And so, this isn't an issue internationally. It's specifically in the United States where this pricing um, and sort of exclusionary formulary uh, tactic is being used, and to great effect for J&J. You know, what's interesting, too, about that is I, I guess that you just, wow, you just, yeah, made me think of something here, too. I think the investors have to recognize that there are very, very different markets for biosimilars between the rest of the developed world and the United States. And I think that one of the things that you have to recognize is that in uh, other countries, biosimilars can be substituted much more easily for the brand name drug than they can be in the United States. So the United States, because they're considered the differences of biosimilars to be sig- more significant than these other nations, mm-hmm. you the doctor has to specifically write the script for that. Right. It's not like you're going to go to the pharmacy with a, a Lipitor script and they're going to automatically fill it with the, the cheap $4 generic. You know, this, this is something that the doctors have to prescribe. And what makes it even more complex is that these drugs in the U.S. are infusion-based drugs, which means that they are... Um, dosed to patients in the provider's facility. That means that the providers have to pre-buy these drugs and then file a claim with the insurer afterwards for reimbursement. Now, I don't know about you, Michael, but if I'm running a company, I've got to put out a ton of money for these very expensive drugs. And I'm not sure I can get a reimbursement on Inflector, but I absolutely know I can get reimbursed on Remicade. Which drug am I going to stock in my Facility. Particularly if I already, if I also have patients who are generally saying that they're very pleased with the Remicade drug, and when frankly there's a lot of confusion about biosimilars still. I mean, it's still a very new development here in the United States. Yeah, it's pretty darn clear which side you're gonna, what, what you're gonna do there. Yeah, I mean, it's, Pfizer went back to these insurance. I mean, you know, listeners, if you get a chance, go out and actually, re, you know, get a hand on the complaint so you can read it, and then you, go out and search for Johnson Johnson's response to it. You know what? Even, Two very even, different even, stories being told there. I'll let you come to the conclusion on which one you believe to be correct. You know what? Even uh, even one better. Email us at industryfocus@fool.com and we'll send them to you. So again, that's industryfocus@fool.com. We've got them. You know, if you don't want to spend time googling around, I get that then just drop us a note and we'll send them on. Awesome, because they are such, they're extremely interesting reads. And this has major implications on biotech and healthcare spending overall, and on total drug spending and the path and the trajectory of prices over time. Because the other thing, Michael, that, that, you know, Pfizer says in their complaint is that not only have they denied us access to compete fairly in the market through these tactics, but at the same time, they're raising their price on Remicade. So the price of Remicade has climbed despite a lower cost provider ent- entering the market. Right. 
Yeah. So yeah, there's there's definitely uh, a lot at stake for biosimilars, and I think that you know investors sh- sh- shouldn't assume that this tactic is going to successfully keep all biosimilars from gaining traction. I think you go back and you look at you know the pro- what happened with small molecule generics. It took a while for them to reach the tipping point of widespread use. You know, I mean, I think about 10 or 12 years ago, they represented about 50% of prescription volume. Today, they represent closer to 90% of prescription volume. There's going to be some bumps along the way here as these market players kind of figure out how to navigate, um, you know, the rules here in the United States. I still think this is a very big market opportunity. I think that investors need to be paying particular attention to it because I think there's a lot of money that can be made for investors by owning biosimilar companies uh, like Pfizer. Um, but you're going to want to watch this and see basically what happens with the court system, if they weigh in, how they weigh in. Yes. We cannot make predictions about this particular case. We have no clue. But I can predict this is not the end of litigation around biosimilars. Uh, and I can also predict that there will be uh, changes in how things are done today, five years from now, 10 years from now, maybe two years from now. And I think we'll learn a lot about that as the time comes. And you can bet that we'll be reporting on that here at Industry Focus. That's it for this week's healthcare show. Questions, comments, you can always reach us at industryfocus at fool.com. And again, if you want a copy of the complaint letter and the response, email us, industryfocus at fool.com or on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. <laughs>